Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy. Uh, I'm joined by uh, my uh, colleagues, uh, Ryan Sweet, Director of uh, Real-Time Economics, and Chris, uh, Chris Dorides, the Deputy Chief Economist. And we have Marissa DiNatale back. Uh, Welcome, Marissa. Good to have you back. Yep. And you are head of global forecasting. Last time you were on a couple of weeks ago, two or three or four weeks ago, we were talking about forecasting. This go around, we're going to be talking about uh, the American, the state of the American uh, household, maybe better put, the, the state of the, what should I say, the, the financial health of American households. Uh, I don't know why that was so hard to say, but uh, we're going to be talking about how well American households are doing. And it, it's apropos to have you on because uh, you, uh, I have a lot of expertise in understanding household balance sheets, and we'll get back to that in, in just a minute. This is a little weird, this podcast, right? It's Wednesday morning. Uh, it, typically, we record this podcast Friday afternoon. We have a whole week of economic data to talk about, but uh, because I'm going to be on a plane uh, traveling, uh, we decided to push this up a little bit, but it feels a little weird, doesn't it? Uh, to me, it does. It does. Yeah. It does. We don't have as much... So- uh, Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so I'm um, just a preview. I'm going to break the rule in terms of the uh, week uh, indicators within the week. I'm going to look back two weeks. So, Ryan, is he allowed to do that? I mean, he just you know he just unilaterally changed the rules. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I guess we're going to we're going to have to comply. Just three days, not even not even Wednesday, right? So yeah, that's fair. I, so. I, I was thinking of doing the same thing, but then I was thinking Ryan would give me all kinds of grief for doing that. So. I'll do that anyway. So. Mine is from last week too. Yeah. Oh, okay. I already know. I thought it was fair game since it's a short week. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. That that sounds good. We'll be. We'll. I think that's fair, uh, given the situation that we're in. Um, I did though uh, send an email out, just kind of outlining the conversation a little bit. I think we should focus on indicators that relate to the Delta variant and the impact on the economy. Is that is that fair? Is everyone on board with that or or is that consistent yeah. with your indicators? Also, certainly, right? But we also want to talk about the uh, household financial health, right? So yeah. a little oh. bit of both, maybe? Okay, a little bit of both. Okay, fair enough. I, I have a feeling Chris is a... Uh, oh, I know what Chris's indicator <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I just I, gave I, it away. I think I was playing at home. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Okay, well, why, why don't we begin with you, Chris? Oh, well, I, and I should say, just for the fair listener... As you know, part one is a discussion of the indicators, and we each uh, uh, put forward a uh, our favorite indicator for, I guess now, uh, last week and this week. And then we do turn to the, to the topic at hand, and we are going to focus on the health of the American household, the financial health of the American household. Okay, so with that, uh, Chris, um, let's start with you. Um, I'm intrigued. What, what, what's your indicator? So this is a uh, underhanded softball now. It's uh, 37.7 billion. Now, I think I know. Uh, Marissa, do you know? I think this is right. I think down so. Right. Uh, okay. God, I'll let you go. Ladies first. Go ahead. Well, is it g- growth in household credit over the last quarter? That's right. The G19 series from the Federal Reserve. So that's total uh, consumer credit. Uh, revolving plus non-revolving. Oh well, you, okay. Well, let me let me ask. Let's just make this a little harder. Okay. Uh, okay, but before I do that, give give us some context. Is is that a 
What kind of number is that? 37? That's strong. Uh, certainly it's it? strong in uh, normal times. Uh, certainly it's a, it's a big jump and uh, certainly coming out of COVID it's a, it's a big increase. Uh, increases in, like I said, both non-revolving and revolving, almost a 50, 50 split, right? About 18 billion on the uh, revolving side and 20 billion on the, uh, on the non almost 20 billion on the non-revolving side. So, uh, consumers are out there, uh, borrowing once again, they're charging their, on their credit cards. They're, they're still borrowing for auto student loans, right? Really across the board, you see credit growth and that's supporting some of the spending we're seeing. In revolving means basically cards, bank cards. Basically bank cards, although now things are shifting as well. We can get into some of these trends uh, as well. The millionaire generation in particular is is, uh, attracted by the buy now, pay later uh, type of arrangements. Um, Less less interested in the credit card, perhaps, although that remains to be seen. So that, that revolving component, it seems as though that also captures some of these newer fintech type of loans as well. Oh, got it. And gas and, prices. Um, gas so prices. Revolving, are, yeah. yeah. So uh, gas prices go up, you see revolving. Yeah. Go up. yeah good point. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And non-revolving is mostly auto debt and student loan debt, correct? Yes. And it would also include the uh, uh, fixed term personal loan. Right. Well, here, let me uh, at, uh, uh, make this a little bit more complicated. Uh, <laughs> what was the... Uh, increase in total household debt in the quarter. Oh, including mortgage? Was that 30, oh, wait a second. Was that 37.7 billion mo- the monthly increase or was that the quarterly increase? That's the monthly. Monthly. Oh, okay. Yeah. There was a monthly increase. May to June. Yeah. May to June. Uh, oh, really? So, okay. So what, what was the quarterly increase? So this is Q2 uh, in the total household debt outstanding which would also obviously include mortgage first mortgage debt and mercy i you should know this i think because this is based on the equifax data yeah and it came out last week but i don't know what it came out last week yeah no no you don't you don't know that data oh okay i can look it up up. i'm gonna show you (laughs) up it's about a hundred billion dollar increase in in the quarter and actually credit it was it how much was it? Ninety four. Ninety four billion. Yeah. 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 But uh, about a hundred billion. That was in, the month. Sorry, that was the month of oh, June. Was, was, was it the yeah. month of June? Oh, okay. I thought it was the quarter. Okay, so the month of June. So, or sorry, July. It was July. Oh, geez. Yeah. I, I, think, <laughs> I think we should start this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> over. The perfect podcast has ended. Like, we, <laughs> all right, we sort of know the data. Okay, <laughs> look it up. Uh, okay. Uh, but but it it does show that household credit growth is picking up. It's accelerating. Uh, we're now seeing kind of mid single digit year over year growth, and for a while there it was obviously declining. So a uh, big turnaround there. Okay, fair enough. Okay, uh, Ryan, what's your statistic? All right, so I got two. I have an economic one and a non economic one. But we'll yeah. save the non economic one because it's the perfect transition to the big topic. All right. All right, so I'll give you the economic one right now. And this is, you're going to screen that this isn't fair, but Mark asked for something that shows the Delta variant impact. And the number is 32.1%. 32. 32.1%. 32. That's positive. No, no negatives. No. 
Yeah, I, I know my signs. <laughs> inside joke, by the way. Yeah. Um, Not that inside. If you listen. go 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 back and listen to the last podcast, Marissa was on. <laughs> oh my goodness! Thirty-two uh, percent. Thirty-two point one percent. It's a weekly number. A it's a weekly, weekly number. number. And you said it's related to the Delta variant, uh, mm-hmm. showing some impact of the Delta variant. Yep. Uh, hmm. Can you give us another hint? The Look. only market to show an increase was Philadelphia. Uh, oh, so I don't, I don't know. That's, uh, it, so it, this is a metric that I've been tracking. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of you know, oh, off the is radar. It your- is it oh. the is it the the stringency index? It's not. It is not. I don't know. I don't know, Ryan. What is it? So you went back into the office. When we go in the office, you you swipe to get in. So yep. there is a castle back to work index, and they track oh, the yeah. uh, across ten markets uh, the the number of people are, are you know going in and out of the office, and this is down from thirty point thirty four point eight percent at the end of July. So since the beginning of August, we get this big surge in uh, COVID cases. It's slowing uh, and reducing the number of people that are going back to the office. Oh, it, has it been steadily improving? And this is the first kind of step back in that? Yeah, it was improving. And now since late July, it's been just coming down. Oh, interesting. And Philly, Philly was the only metropolitan area out of what you said, 10 that actually- track 10. In the last week, Philly was the only one that went up. They were down across the board. Yeah, and there's hardly anyone going to work in Philly. I know that, at least into the office buildings. That's interesting. Um, and, you know, I was in the office, our office. Was it Monday? Yeah, on Monday. And I think that was the first day that people could go back if they wanted to go back. I think we call it a phase one reopening. And I tell you, there were three people in the office other than me. Three people. And they were, it's funny, I ran into two of them. They were brand new employees. I mean, literally brand new. And they were just kind of looking around, looked a little lost. I didn't know who they were. Uh, and uh, and they were the, of the three other, and Phil, the, our, uh, the uh, really good data guy was in also. So it was, I think it was, oh, Summer. Summer was also in, uh, the office manager. But that was it. Um. Okay, so we're, are we going to come back to you then, Ryan, for the non-economic one in yeah. a minute? Okay, mm-hmm. all right, good. We'll do that. And then, okay, Marissa, hey. what is your statistic? I think this is easy. Okay. It is 96.7. It's an index value of a week ago. Do you know, Ryan? And this is re- and this also sheds some light on whether the Delta variant is having some impact on the economy. Ninety-six. Right. Oh, is this our back to normal index? That's my guess. Yes. No, no. But for which state? It, yeah, I got to oh, figure out the state. Oh no! Now you're going down to the state level. Oh, Florida. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's oh the, boy. Florida's back to normal index. So, I mean, I think it's significant because Florida had risen up above a 100% back in May and reached, so the index is, it's indexed to 100. It was, it, we should tell people it was indexed. I mean, I, you guys have talked about it a lot. It's indexed to right before the pandemic in late February, 2020 was 100. It combines a whole bunch of private data and big data and economic data to see 
normal every state is. And Florida has been well above the national average uh, almost the entire time, just given that it hasn't had the, the stringent lockdowns that a lot of other states had. But it got back above 100 in May. It was a, well above 100, about 102, 103 for most of June. And that has been falling since, you know, Delta really emerged in mid to early July. And now it's 96.7. So it's still above the national average, but you definitely see it faltering. And Matt Collier, who's our colleague who puts the index together and covers it, writes about it on Economic View, was saying that of all the states where Delta has surged in the past month, this index value has fallen about a percentage point. And in the states that have reimposed lockdowns that are doing relatively better, the index is still rising and rose by about a percentage point. So you're really starting to see the impact of, I think, the virus itself having a, a toll, taking a toll on some of these states where there is a resurgence of cases, hospitalizations, and now deaths even if yeah. the state isn't, you know, necessarily implementing um, new lockdowns or restrictions to spread the slow of the virus. Yeah, and just for context nationwide, and, I, and I, I think this is a really good indicator to follow because we construct it every day. We release it once a week on a Friday. It's at a state level, and it really is very sensitive to what's going on uh, right now. Nationwide, we're at, stuck at 92%. So we steadily improved. It steadily improved in the spring, early summer as vaccinations got rolled out. And then really since mid-June, really kind of early July, it's gone flatline nationwide. And that, that uh, reflects declines in the index in states where vaccination rates are low and the economy is starting to struggle that's being offset by continued improvement in some of the other states that are more uh, more vaccinated and infections are low, like New York is, is, continues to improve, but still uh, we're kind of going sideways here. That That's a good one. That, that BNI index, that back to normal index, we constructed it with CNN Business and you know we put it on our economic view site, but you can also find it on CNN Business as well. They have a pretty good visual uh, there that uh, helps you uh, kind of look at that index over time by state. Okay, good. That's a good one. Um, all right, I, this, I'm going to give you two numbers uh, just to help you out a little bit, uh, and they are related to uh, providing some sense of the impact of the Delta variant on the economy. Uh, uh, and the two numbers are 70 and 15. 70 and 15. And these are you know related indicators. They're different indicators, but they're related. One of them came out this week on Monday, the other one came out last week on a Friday. Uh, so the and, 70 is something with you, Mish. Is that the present, present conditions? Uh, that's the overall index. Seven, oh, the seven. overall, yeah. So that was down 11 points. That was an enormous yeah. drop. Yeah. That, that is a big, and in fact, I think 70 is the lowest reading since the pandemic hit, even lower right. than last March and April. What about the 15? Is related <laughs> That's our global business confidence survey. Exactly. That's right. And, and that, that was my second. That was my backup statistic. Oh, was that right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. We have a, our own business survey, uh, weekly survey we've been doing since 2003. It's a diffusion index. Uh, so a percent of positive, less percent of negative responses. 
And it's it, it improved again in the spring and early summer when vaccinations were getting rolled out, but has gone flatline now uh, over the last uh, really six, eight weeks. Here's the interesting thing in last week's reading, though. Uh, one of the questions uh, is uh, a broad one around present condition. So the, the survey respondents asked, uh, you know, how do you assess current business conditions broadly? And uh, that, again, that's a diffusion index, percent of positive responses, things were improving, less percent of negative responses, things are getting worse. That turned negative last week for the first time since uh, back in March. Uh, and that, that present conditions question is, uh, I think, the most uh, sensitive to what's going on in the economy real time. So that, that gives you a sense of, I think the Delta variant is having an impact. Uh, it's really starting to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, I don't know. We got retail sales yesterday. They were very, very weak. That probably, there's a lot going on there, right, Ryan? That, I don't know if you can yeah, see. Yeah, it's nothing to do with Delta. Delta nothing really, at I mean, all? The, no, no. Okay. You'll all see right. it in the, the yeah. August data for retail sales, the Delta variant, the impact on restaurants. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah, the weekend bar was actually up. Yeah, it was up in July. What was that's, up in July? Yeah, that's pre-surge in, in COVID cases. The weakness in that? August or July, what? that was the timing of Amazon's Prime Day, the drop in vehicles, that all weighed on retail sales. So I'm sorry, what 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 you were, what happened in July? What 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 was up in July? In the July retail numbers? Restaurant spending? Uh, restaurant restaurant and restaurants bar. Was, yeah. Oh, okay. It was up one point seven percent. Oh, was it? Okay. All right. Uh, very good. Um, so, but what do you think? I mean, how big a deal is this? Uh, I mean, I guess if we're all assuming, and it feels like we're kind of all assuming the Delta variant is going to roll over here, that infections and hospitalizations are going to start to come down in the next few weeks, kind of sort of what happened in the United Kingdom, uh, which seems to be leading us a bit in terms of the waves here. But if that doesn't happen and this continues to, uh, uh, the infections and hospitalizations continue to increase. How, how worried should we be? Or let me put it this way: When should we get worried? You know, what what do we have to see before it starts impacting the economy to the degree that we uh, our optimism about the economy starts to fade a, a little bit, or has it already started to fade? I think it's all about the schools, right? If we uh, Just to say that. if the uh, infections do get if the hospitalizations actually that's that's the key factor, right? I would watch if those rise to a level that threatens the hospital system, then you could see more imposition of, you know, stay at home requirements. And if the schools have to go online again, then I think that that certainly is going to impact the, uh, the outlook certainly over the next uh, quarter, at least. Yeah. So if, if schools go, don't reopen for in-person right. learning, that would be a clear tell that this thing is doing some real, going to do some real damage to the economony. Yeah, I think so. I don't know, Marissa, Ryan. It just feels like the data is, is, you know, you know, the data coming, they ebb and they flow. So I don't want to read too much into the ebbs and the flows, but it, it feels like it's ebbing a little bit here. The numbers, all these different statistics coming together, and it's, you know, the big statistics like retail sales and it's the, you know, minor statistics like the home builders sentiment index. They all are coming in now surprising to the downside a bit. 
uh, feels like. Is is that just yeah, we don't mean- wanna, you don't want to read too much into it because things are okay. still really really strong. So control retail sales are still eighteen percent above their pre pandemic level. So things are coming off the boil, but I mean we're they kind of been booming, you know, the, earlier this year. So control retail sales being control retail sales. That was so that's total retail sales, excluding autos, restaurants, building materials, and gasoline. And that's what feeds into uh, the BEA's estimate of real consumer spending. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that was a shift from uh, service spending to goods because, you know, during lockdowns and the pandemic, people weren't going out to restaurants. They weren't going out to, uh, you know, movie theaters and things like that. So they shifted their spending towards goods, which is mostly what retail sales captures. Okay. All right. And you don't so, really see, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but we're not really seeing huge movements or slowdowns in like the Google mobility correct. or table or anything like that, right? Which yeah, is even, even like weekly that. gasoline demand is still holding up. I don't know, but like, I mean, the Bank of America, they track card spending. Do you, do you see their release? It showed spending on airline tickets really starting to fade here in the last couple of weeks. Spending on, I believe, yep. uh, on hotels fading. You know, travel seems to be affected, being affected. Yeah. yeah, the number of people going through TSA checkpoints yeah. is declining. Right. But yeah. you know, there could be some seasonality there. And, you know, we're coming okay. towards the end of the the summer, so it's really hard to read through the, like the signal versus the noise. Okay, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, we haven't changed our forecast. It's still you know very positive, upbeat forecast, and I do think. That's why I love the uh, GDP tracker that we have that takes all the disparate pieces of information and through statistical techniques translates that into an estimate of GDP growth in the current quarter, which is Q3. And right now, I think it's still at 6.5% annualized, correct? And that's, I, that's I, I, read this, I read this morning, Housing Starts came out today and they were, they were okay, a little on the soft side. But they didn't change that that uh, six point five percent, which would be if no, we got it it, that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, part of it is that you know completions is still pretty solid, and permits, you know, which lead housing starts, you know, they rose. So you know, I think we're in this little bit of a blip. So things should start to pick back up. It's for the housing. This is just a temporary. Yep. Okay. And housing Lumber. starts are very volatile. They're unreliable. They're subject to enormous revisions. So we really you know don't want to read too much into month to month fluctuations and starts. And I guess, Chris, the the statistic you've been following pretty regularly here, initial claims for unemployment insurance, yep. they continue, they're elevated, but they continue to move in the right direction. Is that right? There's no sign in that data that Delta's any, doing any damage, to the certainly not to the labor market. Not yet. Not yet. The last read was for early August, I think August 7th, right? So at that point, it was 375,000 for the week, and that was down, trending down. So the still elevated by historical standards, but uh, showing continued improvement. Yeah. Okay. So, so we get claims tomorrow for yep. the payroll reference week, uh, and people are going to read too much into it, but they're going to drop a lot uh, just because of seasonal adjustment issues. And so people are going to be like, "Oh, you know, the Delta variant's not affecting the labor market." You really can't trust claims right now, not until you know later. Another week or two. Payroll reference. You notice Ryan, he's getting to be very jargon-esque, you know, control retail sales, payroll reference week. Like I, I, you know, keep up with me guys. 
Well, come on. What is the payroll reference week? Well, I'll let Marissa. I mean, Marissa, she used to do the report, so she can elaborate much more to, than I can. She, she's like the expert. I can interpret Ryan's jargon. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he's ahead. my interpreter. Okay. She, he's your whisperer. Marissa is the, is the sweet whisperer. Okay. So the, the payroll <laughs> reference week is when, when, when the BLS surveys employers to find out what the count of you know, employment gains or whatever are, are each month. They ask, they're asking about a specific pay period during the month. So they're asking about the uh, pay period that includes the 15th of the month for the, pay, the payroll survey, the 12th of the month for the, the household survey, or oh, wait, do I have wait, that the other wait, way around? I think uh, she's got that wrong. And my goodness gracious. Uh, and You whoa. had a chance to redeem yourself. Oh, my gosh. That's like, oh, well, one is the twelfth, one is the fifteenth. Right. You got it Do backwards. I have it backwards? Yeah. Yeah, the twelfth for the. Okay, so it's the twelfth for the. And you you the used to put the data together for the BLS? Oh my god, it's Come been on, a while. It's been, yeah, it's been eighteen years. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Marissa uh, appreciates my humor. I do. You I do. do. Okay. It's right. early for her. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. You're sitting in California. It's like really early there for you. Yeah, well, you know, you don't even have Wawa coffee in California. So. No, but I have a I have a nice Nespresso. So okay, all right, right. okay. Um, anyway, um, so they're asking about this specific pay period during the month, and that's what employers are answering the question about. You know, how many how many people are on your payroll during this pay period of the month? So the jobless claims figure that comes out during that week gives us a preview into what the payroll number might be. Okay. And so Ryan, you're saying don't, it, it's actually going to be a, a, a positive surprise. And uh, yeah, it's going to fall a lot more than I think people anticipate. Okay. Interesting. Okay. What's your uh, guess? Well, I don't guess. There's no guess. Jeez. Oh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you just said it's no, unreliable. No, it's mean, unpredictable. criticizing me for <laughs> jargon. I, I, I got 350. But I wouldn't be surprised if it comes in lower than 350000 350000 Oh, that's a substantial that's a big drop. drop. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Very good. And the indicator I've been watching also suggests no damage from Delta, at least not globally. And that's copper prices. Although I haven't, I didn't, I haven't looked oh, in the last They dropped they, a lot yesterday. It's they, weak. They oh, fell did almost they? 3%. Admit, yeah. Oh, okay. So what did it fall to? Do you know? 415 I think. Oh, okay. It's still yeah. over 4 bucks. So. Still over 4 but approaching yeah. Yeah, copper prices anything over four bucks a pound uh, is um, consistent with a pretty strong economy globally. It's a uh, Dr. Copper, uh, but it, it was at four thirty-five, so that came down quite a bit. That is interesting. So we'll have to watch that. Oh, that came down with the market. All markets were down yesterday, though. Equity markets were down, and that gets to bond yields. They're back down to one point two. Ten-year Treasury yields are back down to one point two five. I think. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! And is that? <laughs> I guess Delta is having some impact here on. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Right. And in all markets, I think. I haven't looked today what this market doing today, but it'll be curious to see. But anyway, okay. So the conclusion, bottom line, mm, don't worry, Delta, it's not helping. Certainly no no upside here, but uh, the downside feels limited uh, and unless schools uh, on mass decide 
to uh, go stay online, uh, we should be okay here. Uh, we should kind of navigate through in our optimistic uh, prospect uh, outlook for the economy should hold, hold forth. Yeah, that's kind of the general consensus view here. Anybody disagree with yeah, that? No, I, I'd agree. I think we're, we're banking on things rolling over. Missouri is a good example where things yeah. uh, got really bad. Now they seem to be improving. So mm-hmm. it seems as though this Delta variant will burn itself out, hopefully. Okay. Uh, okay. All right. All right. Well, that, uh, anything else on the indicators you want to talk about? I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground there. Uh, you want my, we... my number for the perfect segue? Yeah, the perfect yeah. segue. Let's hear it. So the, the perfect podcast we know is it, it, it's over. Right, we, it it's is Wednesday, so we'll, you know it's wacky Wednesday. So <laughs> here's the number: it measures is a perfect measure of consumer behavior. Thirty-two thousand three hundred forty. This is non-economic, though, right? This is non-economic. Well, I guess there's a little economics to it. Do, is there all. any probability we would know this number? No. Well, <laughs> I, uh, no. Okay. okay. What was right. it again? Thirty-two thousand three hundred and forty. Yeah, I mean. It's a Guinness World Record. You might be up there if they had it for Wawa coffee. So oh. it's a personal consumption of something. And is it global or U.S.? US? One person since one 1972. One person consumed 32,340 of these things. Yep, whatever. since 1972. Wow. To a day. To a day. To a day. And, and this is, somehow relates back to the health of the American consumer. Maybe the this health is of an individual consumer. Yeah, but oh, the, okay, all right. It's getting really but, micro here. We are getting yes. very micro. Yes. One person, world record. Anybody Two. want to take a crack at that before we say we give? Yeah. Hot dogs. Close. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a food item. Hoagies. Uh, Chewing gum. Chewing gum. Breathments. Big Macs. Big Macs. Big Macs. She's projecting now. She's projecting. Yeah, Breathments. <laughs> Uh, no, one individual consumed 32,340,000 000 Big Macs since 1972 to a day. Is that person still alive? Yeah. <laughs> still adding to the record. They're still adding to it. What and does they, this have and, to do with anything, Ryan? I mean, <laughs> I mean consumer spending. Consumer <laughs> okay. spending. Can you imagine the amount of money they spent on Big Macs? Hence, segue into... The American. Oh man, that Ooh, is a wow. Huge <laughs> I don't know what that is. Ryan. That is a reach. You guys are impressed by that? 32,000 Big Macs? 32,000 or uh, I'm disgusted. disgusted. <laughs> <laughs> Since when, Ryan? Did you say 1970? 1972. 1972. Wow. I didn't even know they had Big Macs that far back, 72. Uh, interesting. I guess, sort of. Okay. <laughs> when, when you said the health of the American consumer, Ryan yeah. took that literally. He took that literally. He took that literally. Yeah. Okay. So we, we uh, that is the the issue here. And um, you know, when when I think about the health of the consumer, I think broadly three things. One, uh, jobs and income. You know, are they employed and are they getting pay increases? Uh, uh, second, uh, debt leverage, um, obviously big problem prior to the, uh, financial crisis, not so much right now, uh, but leverage, uh, and, uh, what do they own, uh, assets? 
house prices and stock values, that kind of thing. And if you kind of look at the consumer, the American consumer from that perspective broadly, and I'm, I'm here, I'm generalizing. It's a broad brush. There's, you know, obviously lots of distinctions we can and should make across the population, but broadly it feels like the American consumer is in pretty good shape, right? I mean, you know, clearly the pandemic has uh, uh, been a problem and we're still recovering from the pandemic. The consumer, you know, unemployment's 5.4%. It was three and a half percent before the pandemic, but we're creating lots of jobs, unemployment's coming in and it feels like we're going to head back to full employment pretty quickly. Leverage is, wage growth has been held up admirably well in the pandemic. Uh, people have been able to save. There's a lot of excess saving. Um, leverage is low. Uh, here's, here's a statistic for you. I was looking in, uh, at, uh, before uh, in preparation for this, the financial obligations ratio, that's the percent of income disposable after tax income that consumers, households are devoting to meeting their financial obligations, which includes not only their, their debt payments, but also uh, lease and rental payments, uh, is 12.9% as of Q1 2021. That's a record low. We've got data back to 19, 1980. The average is close to 16%. So leverage seems low. Asset prices are, well, uh, they've gone <laughs> skyward, right? I mean, housing values and stock prices and bond prices and crypto prices and you know, anything you own, I think is worth a lot more today than it was you know, uh, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, five years ago. So am I wrong? But you know, broadly speaking, the state of the American consumer is, is good. Right. I mean, would you anyone disagree with that or take umbrage with that? Let me aggregate under that kind of representative agent type of model. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. But once you peel it back, right, that's when you see the distinction, certainly. Okay. Go ahead and peel it back. I mean, how do you want to peel that back? Uh, uh, you uh, can we, peel it back in any number of ways. I, I right. guess one way would just be by income or education, right? So certainly uh, folks who are more educated have been able to fare through better uh, during the uh, the pandemic than, than folks with less education, just in terms of their ability to work remotely or keep hang on to jobs, right? So while savings rates are up and they're up in aggregate, and they actually are up across the board, they certainly are much higher for folks in the upper income distribution, more highly educated than at the uh, at the bottom part of the distribution. Right, so you're right. saying the the obvious uh, distinction yeah. underneath is across income and wealth distribution. That there's been this ongoing skewing of the distribution. Low uh, income households, low moderate income households have been uh, left behind uh, over the last well, thirty almost thirty thirty five years, something like that. Sure. sure, and the asset gains that you mentioned during the pandemic, whether it's housing or financial, right? Those have accrued to the upper part of the distribution by a significant degree, right? Folks at the bottom, at the bottom don't hold a lot of financial assets. They don't, many of them don't own homes. So they really haven't participated in those gains. Right. Well, one fortunate thing in the pandemic is all the fiscal support that's been provided, right? Because that mm -hmm. really helped low and moderate income households in particular navigate through the pandemic not not gracefully. That's definitely the wrong word, but reasonably gracefully, right? I mean, the stimulus checks, the 
unemployment insurance, the food assistance, the rental assistance, that kind of thing. Would you concur with yeah, that? Yeah. And like I said, the savings actually are higher. If you look at checking account balances by income, you could, they are larger today or higher today, uh, even for folks in the bottom 10 percentile than they were prior to the pandemic. So I attribute that certainly to a lot of um, pandemic stimulus support, as well as uh, lack of spending opportunities, right, uh, during the yeah. pandemic. So from that, if you just looked at that metric, sure, things, they're better off, but proportionally or relative to the upper end of the distribution, right? Their gains are small. Yeah. The other thing I've noticed is the labor market is tightened up, but it's really tightened up for lower skilled workers and wage growth for folks in the bottom part of the wage distribution. You know, part of that's increases the minimum wage, but you know, the very tight labor market uh, for the, for the bottom part of the uh, wage distribution, that wage growth there has been actually quite strong. uh, And that's helped too, I think, uh, um, Marissa, Ryan, any, anything, any uh, other way you would broadly characterize the American consumer? So I talked about it in aggregate. Chris talked about it in income across the income and wealth distribution. Is there any other way we should be looking at it that provides some insight into the health of the American consumer, broadly speaking? No. I mean, with 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 any sort of income cuts or wealth cuts, you know, certainly looking at it by race, for example, you know, the vast majority of Wealth and asset gains have gone to white households, not to Hispanic or black households. Um, same thing with the with the income cuts. I think right. another thing, you know, you had mentioned that the financial obligations ratio is at its lowest level ever, I think you said. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of that, what Chris just said, it, there's been not as much to spend on until recently. And then we've had a, a lot of fiscal support. I was just looking at the data on the, the child tax credit payments mm-hmm. that have started yep. to go out. And those are quite large and going to a lot of households. And you can see in that data, this is from the um, the Census Bureau Pulse survey that they've been mm-hmm. doing since the start of the pandemic, that um, people are really using that. 40% of people said that they're using it to pay down debt. And then another third of people are using it to save and only less than 30% are actually spending it. So it just goes to this notion that um, there's a lot of excess saving and debt is coming down because people have been able to use some of this money to, to pay down debt as well. Oh, that, that, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I missed that. So in the most recent uh, Census Bureau's Household Pulse survey, which I recommend to everybody, that's a pretty cool survey that they've been doing more or less regularly since the pandemic, early on in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. In the most recent survey, they had questions around the C- the child tax credit. Yeah. Oh, and, and you can see that the bulk of that is being used to pay down debt and to save, not to spend. Yeah. I mean, 40% of it is going to, to, to uh, pay down debt. So this is data that goes, I think the latest iteration that they did goes through early August. So the questions were as of a couple of weeks ago. Um, no and they, it's a wonderful data set because they ask all kinds of health questions about how COVID has affected people's lives in terms of not only health, but how they're working, how their children are going to school or not, if they're doing remote learning. And you can glean a lot of really interesting things, I think, from that data set. But yeah, one of the sets of questions is about all of the fiscal stimulus. 
So they ask about how are you using, if you're using extended unemployment insurance benefits, what are you doing with that? How much are you using it? What about just the stimulus checks? And now the child tax credit is part of the questionnaire as well. And, and, and just, you, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. And myself. you can clearly see that that paying down debt and saving is, you know, it's turned from those initial payments that went out. The first tranche of stimulus, people spent it, right? Which makes a lot of sense. But as you as you kept going, the spending kind of fell a bit more and it went more toward paying down debt and saving. Yeah. And that's just, true across all income buckets too, which is very interesting. I mean, we know low-income households are more likely to spend than save. And that was certainly true early on in the pandemic. But even now, those lower-income households are using it to save and pay down debt as well. Yeah, and just uh, uh, to provide context, the child tax credit was expanded as part of the American Rescue Plan. That was the legislation support package passed last in in March, and that's in current law. That is from July to December, and then it will expire in January of 2022, unless with this new legislation that's being debated in Congress, there's an extension of that child tax credit through 2025. And that that uh, the, one of the reasons for this is it's it's actually quite substantive. It's a pretty big, expensive line item, so uh, it can be you know very costly. But it is clearly helping out low uh, income households uh, to at least uh, save more and pay down debt and help them with their bills. That's that's good to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, that leads to a, a, a critical question. Uh, with regard to our our outlook for the economy, our optimistic outlook for the economy, and that is uh, how much of this uh, excess saving will be spent and over what period of time. So just to make that clear, what I mean by that, uh, people's saving rates have increased dramatically during the pandemic. You know, part of that was I'm sheltering in place. I can't go to a restaurant. I can't travel. You know, I can't do stuff. I might spend a little bit more on a, you know, a, uh, a, a heater for my back deck or, you know, I'm talking me now, uh, or a, uh, a power washer, you know, but there's only so many power washers one can buy. Therefore, you save more. Uh, and then it's also the government support, the stimulus checks and other support. Some of that has gone to, you know, a lot of that's gone to low-income households who have spent it because they needed it uh, to navigate through because they lost their job. But some of that went to middle, high, even some higher middle-income households who have been saving it. And now, as you point out, even some of the child tax credit that's going to low-middle-income households is going to savings and paying down debt, which is the same thing. So saving rates have been very elevated during the pandemic. So excess savings represents the, the difference in the actual saving rate in the saving rate that uh, was uh, uh, evident prior to the pandemic. Uh, you know, if there had been no pandemic, that's the kind of saving rate one would have expected. And if you towed up all of the dollars saved uh, in excess, this excess saving, you know, by our calculation, it's almost $2.5 trillion. $2.5 trillion, that's, that's over 10% of GDP. That is a lot of cash sitting out there in people's deposit accounts and, you know, uh, other, one other reason why other asset prices are rising. Uh, and the question is how much of that excess saving is going to be spent and over what period of time? And I'm just curious, so what, you know, what do, what do you think is, is that excess, if all that excess saving got spent, you know, quickly over the next 12, 18 months, 
that would be, you know, obviously a, a ton of growth and the economy would probably overheat. So that's not what we're expecting. So I'm just really curious what how, how people are thinking about this and, you know, uh, whether, uh, how much of that excess saving will be spent. I mean, do you have a view, Ryan, on that? Well, our baseline is a third, correct? Is a third between now and the end of 2022, right? Correct. A third Which of I that think, trillion. I think that seems reasonable, but I think the risk is that it's spent slower and less than what we're anticipating, given the distribution of the excess savings really favors high-income, high-wealth households. So they have a much lower marginal propensity to consume, and I think they might treat that more as wealth than you know extra cash. So I think that... I, I would. I think our forecast is reasonable, but I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out slower. Right, Chris. You, you. I know you. You put together a nice deck with a lot of slides, and I saw one on the <laughs> saving. Uh, I think you. You actually went and calculated the increase in the amount of cash sitting in people's deposit accounts, right? Uh, based yeah. by where they were in the income or wealth distribution. That's right. Uh, this is data from the Fed. They they produce distributional uh, account information now. They actually break out all different asset types, right? So I just picked the the checkable deposits just as the most uh, liquid uh, form of, of, of savings. And this uh, goes back to my earlier point about you know, there's a lot of cash sitting in, in these uh, checking accounts really across the income distribution. But as Ryan said, it's really skewed towards that, that higher income uh, household. So I, I agree with Ryan. I think that the risk is actually to the... Um, to the uh, downside less, in terms of yeah less yeah. of a less of a burn or less of a, a cash coming into the economy over the next 12 18 months which and that would be consistent with what happens after <clears throat> post world war eras where you had a lot of excess savings during them and then when you come out of it it really didn't get re- released very very quickly so you know it's a small sample size but you know that might be what uh, you know we see going forward yeah there was a really great Peace and Barons, uh, going back to after World War II, and they had one quote from an economist, you know, in, in that period saying, "Watch out! There's a lot of excess saving." I think he even used the term "excess saving." I think if he didn't, it, you know, that's what he was implying because uh, there was a lot of pent up demand. You know, people couldn't spend during the war, right? They because we were all producing military equipment, we you know, weren't producing homes or anything else. So his argument was, "Well, people are going to come home from the war. There's going to be this massive." increase in spending and we're going to have this huge spike in inflation. We're going to have a real problem with inflation. I mean, it felt just like the debate we're having to, I mean, literally, you know, the debate we're having today. And of course that did not happen. People did not go out and spend, they, you know, spending was strong post-World War II, but it was not booming and certainly not booming to the point that it led to this runaway inflation that uh, the economists at 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 that point in time were worried about. So that would, I think that is a pretty good analog today. Marissa, any nope. insight here on the on on wealth uh, on um, on excess saving uh, that we missed? Well, I, I just what what you just said kind of led me sort of to think about another question, which was all the stimulus that we've had over the past year, and you know there was some. I remember there was some debate back when that was being proposed that you know, you're pumping all of this cash into the economy and giving all of this cash to households. And could that eventually spark inflation? And I don't think that that's, I don't think there's much evidence of that too. It's just, it's been so gradual. Um, and a lot of the spending is still to come and will trickle out, you know, over the course of 
particularly like the infrastructure stuff where it has to be dispersed to states and states need projects. And, you know, that will happen over a longer period of time. I mean, it's an incredible amount of money that's going into the economy, but it seems to be kind of being uh, dispersed at least gradually over the course of the years. And and we're not seeing any huge spikes, I think, that we can blame on that in inflation either. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I I do. I think that's right. I mean, uh, I, I do think the there, there was, you know, one other concern expressed about all that support, fiscal support, uh, or stimulus, as you you labeled it, was that you you know it's kind of a waste of money, you know, because you're not stimulating the economy if people are going to save it. Uh, but I would take umbrage with that. I mean, I think you know it's very important to uh, uh, help out these low middle income households that you know, we're having a great deal of difficulty and still are having a great deal of difficulty, you know, kind of navigating the pandemic, you know, through new fault, no fault of their own. And they had no savings. And so, you know, helping them out here to kind of navigate through was obviously helping them out, but I think ultimately helped out the economy. So I didn't, I don't think that argument was a very good one either, but uh, that was one you also heard. Um, I'm actually, okay. I'm actually hopeful that the, the savings stick, right? Before the pandemic, we were yeah. very concerned about financial fragility, as you recall. Exactly. Right? So many homes can't afford a $400 emergency expense. Yeah, the so other thing... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. I, yeah, I mean, just to say, if, you know, if, if these savings help uh, or these stimulus funds help them to build up some, some cash buffer, that points to our long-term resiliency. The other thing I, I really worried about, you know, if you go back a year ago when things were really tough, unemployment very high, and there was, you remember the riots in the streets that we were experiencing last summer, it felt like the whole social fabric of the country could come undone. Uh, and, you know, it, I, I, I get it. I mean, if you're a household, you're out of work, no prospect for going back to work, you're stuck at home, uh, your internet connectivity is poor, you got kids there that are struggling to adjust to the situation that they're in. Um uh, you know, the incredible hardship. Uh, if we hadn't provided that support, you know, what would have happened? You know, would the would we uh, would the fabric of the nation actually uh, rip apart? But it didn't. It kind of held together. And I think a, a, one could argue that that's because of all of the support. It really did help these households navigate through this period reasonably well. Uh, so I think that was important from that perspective, also. Um, another issue, uh, concern about the health, you know, again, about the health of the American consumer is going, sticking to government support is that, you know, the government also, the federal government has also provided support to households, uh, with debts. Uh, so various, uh, 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 moratoriums on, uh, rental eviction, moratoriums on foreclosure, uh, you know, for government-backed loans from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, USDA. Also forbearance on mortgage payments for government-backed loans. So, you know, if you uh, uh, if your income was disrupted by the pandemic, you were having trouble making your mortgage payment on a Fannie Mae loan, uh, you could get forbearance. And so a lot of people have gotten, uh, and forbearance means I don't, I don't make those mortgage payments. For, I think it was up to 18 months in total. Uh, student loan, uh, borrowers also have forbearance, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. I think that now extends into January, doesn't it? January 2022. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, but all those 
those uh, supports to consumers on the on the on the debt side of their balance sheet, uh, you know, on the leverage side of their balance sheet, are going to expire. Uh, it's just a, you know, it feels like it's now. I, probably by early next year, this is all going to go away. The rental eviction moratorium, which is extended through October, if it's not changed by the courts, will expire. The forbearance is starting to wind down. You know, one of the concerns was that as that as the, that uh, support faded away, this so-called forbearance cliff would be a problem that, you know, households would, you know, struggle with that and that that would hurt their their ability to spend on other things. So if I don't have to make a mortgage payment, I can spend on other things. But now that I have to make a mortgage payment, that will create problems. And it will also uh, lead to other credit issues. You know, people not making mortgage payments or student loan payments or card payments, whatever it is. Any, any, how worried should we be about that at this point? Uh, any, any insight there, Chris? I'll, I'll turn to you and then to Marissa. Uh, any, any, how are you feeling about that so-called forbearance cliff at this point in time? Yeah, not not particularly worried. Certainly, when it comes to mortgage, just in terms of everything that has gone on in addition to the forbearance, particularly the the rise in home prices. So the demand is is strong. It, incomes are growing. Jobs are plentiful. So I I believe that. Uh, homeowners will be able to for mo- most homeowners will be able to resume their 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 payments i don't see much of a a problem uh there for those that can't that can't can't replace the income or or, or continue to struggle they from the bank perspective or the lender perspective at least they have the option to uh, sell their homes right uh for many of them they are they have positive equity so i don't expect to see a wave of uh, foreclosures uh for example um at the end of the uh, of the forbearance uh, period here, so for mortgage, I'm not particularly where lending standards have continued to remain very very tight even prior to the pandemic. So I don't see a foreclosure cliff um, coming uh, anytime soon there. So mm-hmm. from that perspective, I'm feeling pretty comfortable. What about student loans? Should we be worried about that? So student so for student loans, I think what we'll we'll see the uh the problems that we had before the pandemic before the forbearance went into effect will be revealed once again there it's a little bit uh different situation um uh because the uh, defaults really do or are highly correlated with the performance of the borrower as a student right so we see that most defaults or most significant defaults come from people who took out some student debt but didn't actually complete the degree or took out a de- or studied in an area that where the degree has has very limited value, so I as the um, forbearance expires, I think the people who have uh, uh, well-paying jobs, college-educated, you know, they do have student debt. I do see them as being able to re- restart uh, their payments, but uh, it's that group uh, once again that has perhaps limited amount of student debt, but uh, doesn't have the income uh, generation opportunity to. to to service the debt. So I think that will be a problem, but I don't see this as a, a problem that's any worse than what we had uh, prior to the pandemic. Yeah. Again, because the labor market is is relatively strong. Marissa, anything to add to that? Any, any or different perspectives? You disagree uh, back, with anything Back on the on the mortgage forbearance. So um it's you know it's relatively small. So the number of people that are behind on mortgage payments is about 7 million people. And that's a little under 8% of all households that have a mortgage. So um, that, that's the Equifax data you're referring to? No, this is actually mm-hmm. also from the, the CPS. Um, 
the, the pulse the, survey. Oh, the pulse. Oh, oh, the pulse yeah. survey. The pulse survey. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is very current yeah. as of a couple of weeks ago. So there's mm-hmm. 7 million people that are behind on their mortgage payment and almost like 40% of them, a little less than half of them are unemployed currently. So, I mean, I think you can, you know, you can clearly see how helpful some of these programs have been just to, to get us through um, the past year and a half on this stuff. But I think that's still a relatively small percentage of all homeowners, mortgage owners. And I think like Chris said, just given the increase in asset values over the past couple of years, you know, I think that becomes less of a worry when this does start to roll off. You know, Marissa, I don't think I'd be using that data. I'm not sure. 7 million, that's a lot. I mean, there's there's, uh, 49 million people with mortgages. So 7% would be a very high delinquency rate. Uh, Okay, well, it's yeah. so it's it's people that live in an owner occupied home that where there's a mortgage on the home. So it's yeah. I, I think that it could be higher because you have multiple people in a household. Oh, like that's, that's, what, you know what that's I mean? what's going on. Yeah. That's what they're asking on. about. Yeah, so they're it's asking individuals, and they're asking about does the household have a mortgage? Okay. Yeah, I yeah I I think I would use our data or the the Equifax data or the which shows very low delinquency. You know, some of it because it's forbearance, but to your point, but I'm not sure I'd use that pulse survey. Um, just a little wary of it in in that context in terms of the numbers. Yeah, I, I wanted to look at it just because I wanted to cross it with the the different kinds of um, uh, stimulus and forbearance and and fiscal help that's been to see how those people are not using it. Well, here's another statistic. There's one, this is from the Mortgage Bankers Association. There's 1.6 million people that are receiving some form of mortgage forbearance at this point in time. So that, uh, and that's declining very quickly. You know, know, they release that data every single week. It's it's falling uh, pretty quickly. I think the delinquency rate is or the forbearance rate is about three and a half percent, but that's coming in pretty quickly now at that point. So that makes me more yeah, that's consistent exciting. with what you're saying that, you know, uh, we're coming to the same place using different data, but uh, I feel, you know, less worried. I, I will, I, it, I think it is important to point out though, that delinquency rates, loss rates, foreclosure rates uh, are going to rise, right? Because they are very, very low because of all this forbearance. And as that goes away, it, you know, they're going to rise simply just to normalize to kind of levels that prevailed prior to the pandemic. So that that's they're already story. rising. I mean, if you look at the Equifax data across all different kinds of uh, household debt, they're rising, but from very, like you said, very, very low levels. But they're they're starting to tick up as people are credit is expanding and people are spending again. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about income and savings. All feels pretty good. Okay. You know, obviously higher income households, a lot more excess savings than lower income households, but across the board feels like we're moving in the right direction. We've talked about leverage and debt, talked a little bit about the forbearance cliff there again, feels like we're moving in the right direction. Everything feels pretty good. You know, not got a ways to go before we're back to normal, but we're headed in that direction. Let's talk about the asset side of the household balance sheet. And of course, you know, assets are largely owned by, you know, a small part of the population, right? I mean, home ownership rates 
are 65%. So that means, you know, 35% of the population are renters. But if you look at stock holdings, only 50% of the population own any stock whatsoever. And the bulk of that is in the top, you know, 10% of the wealth distribution, you know, deposits and other savings accounts and fixed income assets, again, pretty skewed. But there, that feels really, I mean, what what's not to like uh, about what's going on with asset prices, right? I mean, any what now I've got a couple of worries there, but before I express my worries, do you guys have any concerns about that? What what, what what's bugging you about the asset side of the balance sheet, or is there nothing to worry about on the asset side? Well, one thing right. I would say is just as we're talking about excess saving with all these high high income households, it's very likely they'll invest some of that even yeah. further, right? So especially high-income households with that cash, they're not going to have that sitting in a, a savings account. Um, they're likely to invest it either back into equities or or maybe into real estate. So, I mean, I think you're going to have more growth. I got a, I got a good story there. My, the my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law uh, you know, uh, every time a CD rolls over, we'll, we'll call and say, what do I do with that money? So Which does I my do mom. Uh, oh, I'm curious. Well, this is what I tell her. I'm curious what, you're, what you tell your mom. I say, I say, uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> I said, you know, because she's she's in her 90s, right? I mean, I, I, what it, I, do you really want to invest in in equities uh, or even fixed income or you know? So I said, well, my mom, you know, maybe just keep it in cash, you know, <laughs> and she goes, she kind of says, uh, oh, she was, at, she wanted to know about gold. And I said, ah, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. And she goes, what's this thing called Bitcoin? So oh I God. Said, oh, no. <laughs> I know. I said, no, let's just, why don't we just keep it in cash? And she goes, well, okay, what is it you do for a living again? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay. How do you answer your mom when she asks that question? I tell her that she's paying a financial advisor to answer these questions and go ask him. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, you know, I just like, it's just how much do you want liquid versus basically I told her just give, let it roll over and give him the money and have him invest it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but anytime anyone asks me what I do, I said, I'm an economist. The first question is what's going to happen with the stock market? Yeah, yeah, me too. I am the wrong person to ask that question. Okay, Ryan, what's going to happen with the stock market, man? That's what everyone on this podcast wants to know. What you think is going to happen with the equity market? I think it's going to keep going up until uh, it goes down. Exactly. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think the fourth quarter of this year is going to be rocky because you're going to have the Fed tapering, you're going to have the debt ceiling battle. But again, that's like you know the stock market. You know, corrections are normal. They happen every you know one to two years on average since the 1970s, but you know, over time, it's going to continue to climb. Okay. I got two worries. Uh, well, I guess, I guess there were three, we just tackled one and that is, well, what, you know, what do I do with my savings? You know, where do I invest? That's one worry. Second worry is, um, uh, what happened to the wealth effect? And is there a, let me throw this out. This is, this might be in the anthema, but could there be a, a, the wealth effect's been flipped on its head that, you know, the, the wealth effect is if I, if I'm wealthier, if the value of what I own increases, then I'm going to save less and spend more. 
not, you know, it may not be a lot more, but I'm going to spend a little bit more, right? Because I'm wealthier, you know, I'm prepared mm-hmm. for retirement, my child's college education, I don't need to save as much. And historically, that is kind of sort of what happens, right? You know, stock prices go up, people's saving rates go down, house prices go up, savings rates go down, people spend more. That's not what we're observing now. In fact, could it be flipped on its head because we were seeing boomers, people in their, you know, now in their uh, you know, f- late fifties in their sixties, early seventies saying, Hey, I'm worth a lot more than I was. Do I really need to work anymore? Particularly given this mess called the pandemic. And we have seen participation rates for people 55 years and older really come down a lot. Right. And they're not coming back, at least not so far. And that may be, you know, a pretty big hole to the labor market. So it's actually hurting growth, not helping growth. Am I, did I am I onto something here? Uh, what do you What do you guys think? The, does that sound right to you? It's kind of a negative wealth effect. Isn't there a positive spin to it that, particularly on the housing side, that people aren't using their house as an ATM anymore, which caused a lot of problems, you know, during the bubble, the housing bubble in the early two thousands. So it wouldn't be. You could make the argument that it's actually a good thing that people are saving the wealth in their house instead of. Tapping it like an ATM. Okay, that's consistent with what I just said, though. It's yeah, I think that's good, though. Negative. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. Okay. So you say okay. So there is a. It's actually a negative wealth effect. It's not a positive wealth effect. That it's it's reducing a higher wealth traditionally meant more spending, more growth, and now we're saying higher wealth means less spending, less growth. That that's that's different. That's a big change. Is it? This sounds like you're you're saying it's a temporary thing. Well, I don't know how temporary around the pandemic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's temporary. Sort of. What's temporary though? I mean, it could play. It could be like it could the the wealth effect could be flipped on its head for the next two, three, five years. Right. I mean, depending. I also uh, wonder if households really believe the wealth that they had, that the wealth gains that they have are, are real, right? They've, they've, sure, they have gains on paper, but I think increasingly people are worried about some type of, and expect some type of house price correction or adjustment or, or financial markets. They would expect to see some decline there. So perhaps they're not willing to spend these gains that look great on paper. Yeah. Right? I so, mean, yeah. Um, I'm I'm get, I'm sure you're, and that goes to my third concern, and that is, well, how resilient how durable, are these asset yeah. prices? How durable are these asset prices? I mean, right. It feels like they're disconnected increasingly from underlying fundamentals. You know, stock prices to corporate earnings, housing values to rents. You know, crypto to nothing. You know, so yeah, well, that's you know, where crypto's headed to nothing. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, two trillion dollar market though. It's crazy. Yes. I know it's crazy. <laughs> Pitch. <laughs> yeah. So, but what do you guys think? Am I on to something? Do you think in terms of maybe we should explore this in more detail? I mean, because that would be different than anything we've experienced historically. To Marissa's point, it could be you know, maybe the wealth effect, the the lags are much longer. Because yeah, wasn't the stock market wealth effect you know over one to two years they spent that money? Maybe it's you know a little bit longer than pre-pandemic, right? And it was interrupted by it any spending that could have been done was interrupted by a pandemic. So. I also wonder if there's a permanent shift in consumers' preferences, right? This, the pandemic uh, influence conspicuous consumption and 
what people want to spend on, the more sensitivity to the climate, right? So they're not going to buy a flashy car, perhaps. And so, well, Chris, that's so. definitely not your household. I mean, <laughs> geez, wait, yeah, come on, just to take a look at your house. Well, you're, you're, Ryan, doesn't he spend like, they're, they're out of control over there in the Drew's house. Yeah, I drove by the office the other day. There was a, there was a Tesla in the parking lot. I, I think, uh, who was that? I know it's not yours. First of all, it was Chris. Yeah. Well, no, actually, Marissa, she's out of control over there. She's in, you know, Newport Beach, uh, you know, you know, all the shishi restaurants and no. No. I am actually thinking of buying a fully electric vehicle next year. Uh, Which are in California, a, that's that's required. That's standard, right? that's, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's standard. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground. So bottom line, we're feeling pretty good about things. Obviously, again, you know, a lot of pressure on lower income households, minority ha- households in particular. Uh but abstract, you know, and I, I don't, it's not fair to say abstracting from that issue because that is a big issue. Uh, in aggregate, in total, the American, the health of the American consumer is, is good and should support the economy going forward for the foreseeable future. Right. Any, any disagreement with that? We're all on the same page. Yep. My, my, I do have some concern about the, the, the eviction uh, moratoriums. I think if, if there's one piece of all of this that concerns me, it's that. Yeah, it's a good point. I forgot to bring that up as part of the foreclosure, the forbearance cliff that I was mentioning, mm-hmm. uh, the rental eviction moratorium, because the Centers for Disease Control extended the national moratorium through October, early October, but it's challenged in the courts, you know, because it may not be constitutional for the CDC to, to do that. So it may expire earlier. And by our estimates, there are uh, six and a half, seven million renters out there. And that is a lot of renters. Uh, you know, that there's, um, you know, probably uh, what, 48, 47, 48 million renters out there. So that's a lot of renters that, you know, are behind on their rent and uh, at risk of being evicted. So, yeah, I agree with you. That could be an issue. Yeah. All Do right. you think the funds are going to get allocated? More quickly, the Congress had set aside. Yeah. Well, just to bring everyone up to speed on that one very quickly, because I know we're running out of time here, is uh, Congress and the administration, actually under the Trump administration, Congress, they passed a a, a rental assistance of $25 billion. That was the December legislation. And then the uh, March ARP, American Rescue Plan, they passed another uh, tw- over 20 billion. And so if you add it all up, it's 45, 46 billion in rental assistance. And they're having a hard time getting that money out uh, because it, it's being administered by state and local governments. Uh, and so the, the treasury department is cutting checks, but then the checks are kind of sitting there and I get, there's a great piece I read yesterday about New York's uh, rental assistance program dead in the water. They haven't been able to get any money out because it's just, you know, think about it for a second. It's not easy, right? You got to set up the 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 uh, uh, some kind of portal you you know where people can go and apply and then you gotta they gotta they they gotta give you uh, records on their income landlords have have to participate uh, they you, you know there's all there's all kinds of issues you know just nitty gritty kind of issues involved in you know cutting a check to a landlord uh, to help for back rent and so it's not going so well so uh, I don't know uh, I, I think this is going to be tough. Uh, for them to you know really get that money out uh, quickly, uh, so another reason to be a little nervous about that for sure. 
Yeah. Um, okay, I, I, I'm cognizant of time. We have been chatting, and my wife is peering through the door here saying, what's going on? She's been uh, making sure the dogs don't bark. Uh, Mine's job, texting honey. me. Great job. Great job. My <laughs> wife is texting me if, if we're done yet. Oh, is that right? Okay. Okay. We, I think we should, we should, uh, uh, Marissa, anything else you want to add here that we, we didn't, we missed? Okay. Uh, very good. Pardon me. No, no. No. Okay. All right. Very good. And Chris's, have you noticed Chris has also gotten into emojis recently? Nothing but emojis. I have noticed. I'm all into the emojis. I resisted for a long time. Emoji maven. Actually, my wife, she's over here looking at me. She, she she is the emoji maven. She could she could really help you out, Chris, on you know what emojis you should be using. Uh, if you're interested, uh, no, there. <laughs> thumbs up. Okay, very good. All right, we're gonna call it a podcast. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Talk to you next week.